Podcasting from the heartland of America in the state of Missouri, this is Recovering Faith, a show about increasing or regaining faith, trusting God when it doesn't appear to make sense to do so, and coming to Christianity from a non-Christian or pseudo-Christian worldview. I am your host, Gene Curl, and I wholeheartedly welcome you to this show. Hello and welcome back to Recovering Faith Podcast. Those of you who are regular readers of my blog or listeners of my podcast know that I used to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, colloquially known as the Mormons, and I served a full two-year mission for the church at my own expense. Well, okay, to be honest, it wasn't all at my own expense, because a family I was friends with helped to pay for my mission. But the church did not support me, and except for rare situations, does not support any missionary. Missionaries or their families are expected to cover the entire expense of the mission for the duration of the mission. Though I imagine that if a missionary's parents stopped supporting their son or daughter while on a mission, the church would not let him or her starve. I served my mission in the Hawaii Honolulu Mission, and before you ask, no, it was not a vacation. I was there for a little over two years, and I saw the beach every single day, but as I was not allowed on the beach, I never stepped foot on the beach, not even once. Seeing the beach every day but not being able to go on the beach was a form of torture. I might not have liked all the rules, but I followed them all the same. The first day in Hawaii, all of the missionaries were given the strict, mission-specific rules, one of which was that we were never to go to the beach and that if we were ever caught on the beach, we would be on the next flight home, no questions asked. It was also stressed that getting sent home for breaking rules would be considered a dishonorable departure from the mission and would bring shame to the missionary being sent home and to his or her family. My mission president said, There is nothing wrong with the sand or the water. It's what's on the sand and in the water. And by that, he meant barely clothed beautiful people. Besides the rules, it was stressed to all the missionaries that they were to make sure people understood and believed the church's claim that the early Christian church fell into total apostasy because if there was no apostasy, Then there was no need for a restoration, and therefore no need for Joseph Smith, and the church Smith started would be false, and all of his claims would have to be lies. President Gordon B. Hinckley said in an interview with PBS, Well, it's either true or it's false. If it's false, we're engaged in a great fraud. If it's true, it's the most important thing in the world. Now that's the whole picture. It's either right or wrong true or false, fraudulent or true. And that's exactly where we stand, with the conviction in our hearts that it is true, that Joseph went into the sacred grove, that he saw the Father and the Son, and he talked with him, that Moroni came, that the Book of Mormon was translated from the plates, that the priesthood was restored by those who held it anciently. That's our claim, that is where we stand, and that is where we fall, if we fall. But we don't. We just stand secure in that faith. When some members of the church start to doubt and realize they no longer believe in some aspects of the church, such as the continuing line of prophets, 
They reason that the rest of the church is true, and they stay. But Hinckley's statement leaves no room for debate on the subject. Either all of the church is true, or none of it is. It all hinges on the validity of Joseph Smith's claim to have seen God. So if that is a lie, or if it is not completely and literally true, then the church is a fraud. The entire structure and authority of the church is not only dependent on proving that the early church completely fell away, but is also dependent on proving that the early church looked like today's LDS church does. Even if the early church did fall away into complete and universal apostasy, which it didn't, the LDS church would still have to prove that the church as it is today and the doctrine they espouse is exactly as it was when Jesus was on the earth. But that simply is not the case and therefore cannot be proved. Jesus said about the church that he founded that the gates of hell would never prevail upon it. Jesus asked his disciples who people said he was, and they said an answer. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus was more interested in who his disciples thought he was than who the masses thought he was, so he questioned further. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus was satisfied with the answer and said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, which is Greek for rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Matthew sixteen thirteen through 19 If the church that Jesus founded fell away to total apostasy, then that would mean that Jesus either lied or did not know what he was talking about. And neither of those options are good, as they would mean that Jesus was not much of a God. The more logical response to the passage is that Jesus meant what he said, knew exactly what he was talking about, and the gates of hell did not prevail against the church, and that it did not fall away. One of the big things the LDS Church claims is that since the church fell away, all the priesthood authority was taken from the earth, and since it was restored by Joseph Smith, that the LDS Church is the only ones that has the priesthood. The LDS Church claims to hold two priesthoods, which they say are the power and authority to act in the name of God. One is the Aaronic Priesthood, and the other is the Melchizedek Priesthood. A careful reading of the Bible will reveal that the LDS Church does not have a clear understanding of what the priesthood is or what it was used for. The Aaronic Priesthood, which was only through the literal blood light of Aaron, uh, as you can see in Exodus 28.1, Numbers 16.40, and 18.7 and Hebrews 7.5 was for the offering of sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. A man was ordained as a priest, not by the laying on of hands as the LDS Church does, but by the anointing of the man with oil and then with blood of a sacrificial animal, typically a ram, and the process lasted for seven days. The position of high priest was a lifelong calling, and there was only one high priest at any given time or at least that's the way it was done until Israel was under Roman rule. And then the Roman tribute or a client king could appoint as many high priests as they saw fit. And Herod the Great appointed at least six high priests during his reign.
The high priest's most important job was to, once a year on the Day of Atonement, go into the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifices on behalf of the entire nation and all the Jewish people. But first he had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins before he could offer a sacrifice for others. The whole purpose of the priesthood was to have men stand as intercessors between the people and God. But once Jesus came and gave himself a sacrifice, we no longer needed a man to stand between us and God as Jesus became our advocate with the Father. The LDS Church claims the Melchizedek priesthood was originally called the Holy Priesthood after the order of the Son of God and was changed to Melchizedek as to not use the name of the Lord too often. But the Bible tells us that Jesus was a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not the other way around. When Jesus came, he was not only the perfect sacrifice, but also the perfect high priest. Since Jesus had no sin, he did not have to offer sacrifice to cover his sin before he could offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And his sacrifice was an eternal sacrifice where the other sacrifices had to be performed yearly. It is also of note that when Jesus sent the apostles and disciples out to spread his gospel, the King James Version uses the term that they were ordained, as if to grant special authority. Uh, many are in Acts, Titus, and First and Second Timothy. However, the Greek text does not support this translation. The LDS Church says that they believe the Bible so long as it is translated correctly. Well, the more correct translations more accurately translate this to use the word appointed, or called by way of election in the New Testament. So the Mormon view of having some special authority by way of ordination is not in any way based on an accurate representation of the original Greek word used in the New Testament. For a church that claims to be interested only in the correct translation of the Bible, they sure like to take mistranslations from the King James Version and base their entire doctrine around it. I found an article that poses a theoretical conversation on priesthood authority between an LDS missionary and a Christian. And since it is worded so well and uses most of the verses the LDS Church uses to support their priesthood claims, I will read it. One of the first subjects a Mormon will bring up in an encounter with a Christian is authority and priesthood. Mormonism teaches that the true church was lost after the death of the apostles and that, after 1800 years, the true church with authority was restored through Joseph Smith. Every Mormon elder claims to hold the Melchizedek priesthood. Without it, the foundation of their authority falls, as does their claim to be the only true church. A witnessing situation with priesthood under discussion might proceed as follows. Mormon by what authority do you or your pastor preach, baptize, and in general act for God? Christian, by the authority of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, as we see in John 1, 12-13 and Acts 1, 8. Mormon, but the authority to act for God comes through the Melchizedek priesthood. This was given to me by the laying on of hands by one who has this authority. Christian, can you show me from the Bible where it states that the authority to preach the gospel, to baptize, and to offer the sacrament comes from being a member of the Melchizedek Priesthood? In fact, can you show me in the New Testament where anyone but Jesus Christ ever held a Melchizedek Priesthood? Mormon, in Hebrews 5.4 it tells us that no one takes this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. Christian, the very next te a verse tells us that God called Jesus and no one else to the honor of holding the Melchizedek Priesthood. 
Hebrews uh, 5, 5 through 10. Once again, I must ask, where does the New Testament state that the apostles or anyone else but Jesus ever held the Melchizedek priesthood, which Mormonism teaches is the authority to act for God? Mormon. John 15.16 tells us that Jesus laid hands on his disciples and ordained them. This is where he gave them the Melchizedek priesthood. Christian. The word ordain means to appoint. The verse tells us that Jesus appointed his disciples to going and bringing forth fruit. John 15.16 does not even mention the Melchizedek priesthood, nor does it say that Jesus laid hands upon them. In the book of Acts, there are several scriptures which make mention of laying out of hands for the ordination of service, but none speaks of an ordination to the Melchizedek priesthood. Mormon. By modern-day revelation, we know that Peter, James, and John came down from heaven and ordained Joseph Smith the Melchizedek priesthood, thereby once again restoring the church the true authority and the true authority to the earth. Christian. In order to bestow the Melchizedek priesthood, Peter, James, and John would have to possess it. Where does the New Testament state that they or anyone but Jesus ever held the Melchizedek priesthood? Mormon. We know this by modern-day revelation. And besides, the Bible does not state that the disciples did not hold the Melchizedek priesthood. Christian. Please turn your Bible to Hebrews 7, 1 through 3. The passage tells us that the qualification tells us what the qualifications for a Melchizedek priest are. Let us determine whether you or anyone in your church meet these qualifications. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Who is the king of righteousness? Mormon, Jesus the Christ. Christian, correct. Now let us look at verse 3. Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abiding a priest continually. Many Bible scholars interpret this to mean that there was no record of who Melchizedek's parents were, and he possessed no genealogy. There is no record of his birth or death. He was made like unto the Son of God. His priesthood was continuing and everlasting. Do you know who your father and mother are? Do you know when, they were, when you were born? Do you have a genealogy? Mormon. The answer is yes to all three of your questions. Christian. In addition, to he, in addition Hebrews 7. 26 gives further qualifications for Melchizedek priest. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Are you holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens? Mormon. No. Christian. Therefore you do not possess a Melchizedek priesthood, nor the authority you presume to hold. However, when you have believed and received the genuine Jesus Christ of the Bible, you will have the authority and the correct priesthood of the scriptures. Mormon, you have given me something to think about. Of course, in reality, uh, a Mormon missionary would likely never admit that you challenged their faith, even if you did, because they're taught that that's something they're not supposed to do. Until recently... I was a proud owner of a 1965 glass bar gold cup, 16-foot fiberglass roundabout with the original 75-horsepower Johnson Seeper Seahorse outboard that was on it when it was new. I spent three years restoring the boat, and with the exception of the color, the boat was originally blue and I painted it red. I stayed, to the ori I stayed true to the original when I did the repairs. 
I replace the rotten wood transom with new plywood and cover it in fiberglass. The same with the floor. I rebuilt the seats to the original specifications and cover them with new marine grade vinyl. I replace the rusted and frayed steering cables with new vinyl covered cables. I even polished up all the original bright work and put it all back on after the boat was painted. Everyone always bragged on that boat when they saw it, but mostly it was because it was a faithful restore. Imagine if instead of staying true to the original, I got rid of the 75 horse outboard and retrofitted a 350 horsepower Mercruiser stern drive, went with hydraulic steering, made the boat wider and longer, changed the profile of the bottom, etc. It may or may not have been a good boat when I was finished, and I may or may not have done a good job. But one thing would be certain, it would not be a restoration. To restore is to bring something back to its original condition, like it was when it was new. If after I spent all the time on the boat, if I took it out and excitedly showed it as a restored boat, someone would put me in my place and tell me that it was not a restoration at all. And while it may make me angry and even hurt my feelings, it would be the truth. The LDS Church claims many doctrines that are not to be found in the Bible and say that they are only missing because the Bible was corrupted over the years by religious leaders, removing things they didn't like and adding things that they that agreed with their worldviews. Which would be no more true than if I said the boat originally looked like it did when I was finished with it. But people had altered it over the years and removed things they didn't like and added things that they did. It would be easy to check and see that the original was nothing like I said and that my claims was were false. And it is easy to see that the Bible was not altered to suit a person's view. There is ample evidence, however, that the Bible has remained largely intact and unaltered all these years. There is a version of the Bible, however, that was written with the express intent to support one man's doctrines and views. And that version is a Joseph Smith-inspired translation of the Bible, which is not a translation at all. Smith read the King James Version of the Bible and dictated his changes to a scribe. And there is, a, and there is not a Bible scholar on earth that would support the Joseph Smith translation as anything other than a fraud. A few of the many issues with the Joseph Smith translations include a total of 48 complete verses in the King James Version of the New Testament have been determined to be scribal editions. The Joseph Smith translation fails to correct a single one. An additional 350 verses in the King James Version of the New Testament have been determined to include scribal alterations and mistranslations. The Joseph Smith translation again fails to correct a single one. Joseph Smith altered over 100 of the verses containing the scribal additions and alterations, or mistranslations, including, indicated that he specifically reviewed many of the erroneous verses and failed to correct them. Perhaps the most egregious of the Joseph Smith translation's failures uh, to admit the widely understood scribal edition of the story of the woman taken in adultery at the ending of the book of Mark. In fact, the Joseph Smith translation adds to the story of the woman taken in adultery. The Joseph Smith translation adds the word rabcha to Matthew 5.22, which is a made-up word. In three places, the Joseph Smith translation changes the definition of Golgotha from skull to burial, which is incorrect. 
The Joseph Smith translation misses the King James Version's Calvary mistranslation in Luke 23.33. The Joseph Smith translation mistranslates Cephas to mean seer. One of the things the LDS Church claims is that their temples perform the same function as the Temple of Solomon did, and that the reason there is Masonic symbols and rituals in the temple is because the Masons built the Temple of Solomon and that later were corrupted and as an organization. There's so much wrong with those claims that I don't even rightly know where to start, but I think the easiest claim to disprove is the claim that the Temple of Solomon resembled the LDS Temple today in purpose and rituals. As mentioned previously, the primary purpose of the priesthood was to be an intercessor between God and the people, and the priests would offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. The purpose of the temple was to have a place to offer sacrifices to God. Before the first temple was built, people could only offer sacrifices, or they could offer sacrifices at any official altar. But the sacrifices for the entire people could only be offered at the tabernacle. When the temple was built, it was the only place in which a sacrifice could be made, and when it was destroyed by the Babylonians, there was no sacrifices until the second temple was built. When the second temple was destroyed by the Romans following the Great Revolt, there was no longer a place to offer sacrifices, and the Jews still offer no sacrifices up to this day. There is simply no evidence whatsoever that the temple was ever used for baptisms of the dead, initiatory, endowments, marriage, ever used any of the signs or tokens of the Masons, or any of the other claims the LDS Church makes. The priests were temporary intercessors between God and man, and the temple was a temporary place to offer sacrifices, and the sacrifices themselves were temporary. When Jesus came, he was our high priest forever, our intercessor between God and man. He replaced the temple and was our eternal sacrifice. Ordinances and sacrifices are no longer needed, and we no longer need any person to be our intercessor. Jesus said that to destroy the temple and that he would build it up in three days. Jesus is the temple, and the three days was referencing his three days in the grave before his resurrection. As far as the Temple of Solomon being built by the Masons and the Masonic rituals originating from the temple, that is also easy to, to disprove. According to the Masons themselves, Masonry started in the Middle Ages and was never a religious organization and offers no saving doctrine or secret knowledge. The claim by the LDS Church that the Masonic Order was around from Bible times, built the Temple of Solomon, and performed saving rituals inside the Temple are simply not supported and are disputed by the Masonic Order itself. To summarize, the priesthood was meant to perform blood sacrifices for people and to be the ones who connected the people to God. And once Jesus came, there was no need for anyone to intercede for us and no need for sacrifices because Jesus was the perfect high priest, the perfect sacrifice, and our advocate with the Father. The temple was never used for anything other than sacrifices and was not built by the Masons. The church that Jesus founded did not fall away, and therefore there was no need for a restoration. And since the LDS Church looks nothing like the church Jesus Christ founded, it could not be a restoration. The Bible is the Word of God, and it is important that we go to the Bible and spend time reading and understanding what it says, and that we not get our doctrine from 
any book other than the Bible. The Bible warns us that there will be false Christs and false prophets, and it warns us not to follow another gospel. Paul the Apostle said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a, a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Galatians 1, 6-9. So Paul was saying that if anyone preaches a different gospel other than what is contained in the Bible, then they are under God's curse, even if it is an angel from heaven. Even if it is an angel named Moroni who appeared to a 14-year-old boy named Joseph Smith. Paul was saying that even if he or the other apostles were to preach a different gospel, that they would be accursed. Jesus himself said, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming that I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. Matthew 24:45. And if anyone says to you, Look, here is a Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. Matthew 24, 23 through 27. When Jesus comes, it will be apparent as lightning from the east to the west, in that everyone will see it and know, that, know it, and there will be no dispute about it. So if anyone says that Jesus has come, then they are lying or are deceived. Even if Joseph Smith said that Jesus appeared to him in the woods or that he appeared to him in the Kirtland, Ohio, LDS temple. Jesus warned us about false prophets, and Joseph Smith is the king of false prophets and is likely to save more people than all the other false prophets combined. The LDS church also makes a claim that the Book of Mormon is the fulfillment of prophecy in Ezekiel about the stick of Judah and the stick of Joseph coming together. And while I could come up with a great argument as to why that is not what Mormons say it is, I will instead read a wonderful article from Jews for Judaism called The Stick of Judah and the Stick of Joseph, Let's Find Out, by Gerald Siegel. The basic scriptures or standard works of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are the Bible, consisting of the Jewish scriptures and the New Testament, the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. Of the four standard works, the Bible is held in the least esteem. Therefore, it is strange that the Latter-day Saints, Mormons, believe that the Bible and the Book of Mormon actually constitute one book of Scripture, and that the Jews and Latter-day Saints should unite as one people. They claim, they claim that the complete accomplishment of our mutual and heaven-assigned responsibilities involve our becoming united as the descendants of Joseph, with the descendants of Judah, the Jewish people, in the fulfillment of the promises given by the Lord. To justify their beliefs, they make use of Ezekiel 37, 15-17. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, take one stick and write upon it for Judah and for the children of his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel and his companions, and join them one uh, to another into one stick, they may become one in your hand. 
Concerning Ezekiel 37, 15-25, James E. Talmadge writes, Ezekiel saw a vision, the coming together of the stick of Judah and the stick of Joseph, signifying that the Bible and the Book of Mormon. The passage last refers to, reads in the words of Ezekiel, The words of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it, for Judah and for the children of Israel and his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel and his companions. And then join them one to another in one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. When we call to mind the ancient custom of making books, that of writing on long strips of parchment and rolling them, rolling the same on rods or sticks, the use for the word stick is equivalent to book, and the, pas- and the passage becomes apparent. At the time of this utterance, Israelites had divided into two nations known as the kingdom of Judah and that of Israel, or Ephraim. Plainly, the separate records of Judah and Joseph are referred to. Now, as we have seen, the Nephite nations comprise the descendants of Lehi, who belongs to the tribe of Manasseh, of Ishmael, who was an Ephraimite, and Zoram, whose tribal relationship is not definitely stated. The Nephites were then of the tribes of Joseph, and their record or stick is as truly represented by the Book of Mormon as a stick of Judah by the Bible. That the bringing forth of the record of Joseph or Ephraim was to be accomplished through the direct power of God is evident from the Lord's exposition of the vision of Ezekiel, wherein he says, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, and I will put them put them with him, even like the stick of Judah. That this union of two records was to be characteristic of the latter days is evident from the prediction of an event which was follows immediately the gathering of the tribes of the nations among which they had been dispersed. Comparison with other prophecies relating to the gathering will conclusively prove that the great event was predicted to take place in Latter-day times, preparatory to the second coming of Christ. Latter-day Saints claim that because the division of the tribes of Israel into two kingdoms, God provided that separate records should be kept for each. They allege that this passage contains two provisions, firstly that the stick or record was to be kept for Judah, and that a stick or record was to be kept for Joseph. Secondly, that the two records would be symbolically joined together in one stick, or record, that is, a scroll or book, in the hand of the prophet. Having interpreted this passage to meet their theological needs, they then ask, where is the fulfillment of this important commandment? Who claims to have the record of Joseph today? The Latter-day Saints then answer their own question, based on their contrived interpretation of God's message to Ezekiel. However, a study of the biblical text reveals that no mention is made of joining of two records together. The Latter-day Saints' rendering of stick to mean record or scroll or book is incorrect. Yet upon this incorrect understanding is based the Latter-day Saints' claim that God commanded Ezekiel to take the stick, incorrectly rendered scroll, of Judah, and then to take the stick incorrectly rendered scroll of Joseph and symbolically join them together to become one stick of scripture. That is, it is supposedly a prophecy that the Bible and the Book of Mormon are someday to be joined together as one book of scripture. There are several problems inherent in the Latter-day Saint interpretation. In the ancient times, a parchment scroll was written upon and then often attached to a length of wood around it, which it was later rolled. Latter-day Saint interpret the phrase, take one stick and write upon it, to mean that a scroll was meant in this passage rather than that Ezekiel wrote directly on two pieces of wood. 
The Hebrew word, H, tree or wood, rendering stick in this passage does not mean scroll. The Hebrew for which is Megillah, I, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. For example, in Jeremiah 36, 27, the biblical phraseology of the Latter-day Saints seek to express in the Hebrew scriptures by Megillah Sefer, roll or book. A scroll that is parchment skin sewn together and attached to wooden rollers. There is nothing in Ezekiel's prophecy to indicate that a stick refers to anything but one piece of wood, which is in the prophet, which the prophet was commanded to write for Judah, and the second piece of wood which he was to write for Joseph. The sticks were to be symbolic representations of the two kingdoms. The prophet is to take them in his right hand, concealing one end of it in his clenched fist. Then he is to take the other stick and join it to the first one, end to end. His clenched fist will grasp place where the two sticks meet, giving the appearance that he is holding one stick in the one long stick in the middle. Nothing in Ezekiel's pronouncement nor anywhere else in the Hebrew Bible suggests that God's command uh, commanded that two separate records be kept for both kingdoms. Even taking the Book of Mormon at its word, it is not a record of Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel and his companions. It is supposedly a record of the descendants of a family of the tribe of Manasseh, who, along with a number of other, other individuals, allegedly left Jerusalem circa 600 BCE, and were supposedly divinely led to the Americas. In addition, it supposedly contains a record of the Jaredites, a non-Israelite people. On the other hand, this Hebrew scripture contained a chronicle of events which encompasses the utterance of prophets sent respectively to the northern kingdom of Israel, of which Ephraim was the leading tribe, and the southern kingdom of Judah. There is no gap in the biblical record. The greatest problem, however, for the Latter-day Saints' interpretation of Ezekiel 37, 15-17 is that its true meaning is explained in verses 18-22. through and when the children of your people shall speak to you, saying, Will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel and his companions, and I will put them with him together with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be in my, in my hand. And the stick of which you shall write shall be in your hand before thine eyes, and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be to them all, and they shall no more be two nations, neither shall they divide it into two kingdoms any more at all. We are told that the two nations, Judah and Israel, will no longer be divided. The old divisions of north and south will be abolished and that the nation will be united in God's hand. No mention is made of two separate records or scrolls being joined together, but of Ephraim and the other tribes of Israel joining Judah and becoming one nation. Ezekiel 37, 15-7 does not refer to scrolls or books, but to the eventual national unification of the children of Israel. Indeed, the claim of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints refutes its own contention in a very basic way. The passage in Ezekiel cannot apply to the Book of Mormon, which, insofar as it claims to be the record of Israelites allegedly concentrated on the descendants of a family of the tribe of Manasseh, 
and it is not inclusive of all of the northern tribes. In particular, the Book of Mormon is not a historical record of the members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but the alleged historical record of the ancestors of the American Indians. All said, neither the Latter-day Saints as a group nor the people depicted in the Book of Mormon can fulfill the biblical explained prophecy. No amount of genetic testing or DNA sampling will show the Jewish people and the Latter-day Saints to be the same ancestry. The Latter-day Saints are simply not of Israelite origin. The stick represented, representing Judah and the stick representing the northern tribes of Israel become one when held in the hand. In, the stick representing Judah and the stick representing the northern tribes of Israel become one when held end to end in the prophet's hand. Thus will the tribes of Israel that the sticks represent become one in actuality. Ezekiel 37, 15-17 makes no reference of two separate records being kept, one for Judah and one for Joseph. Furthermore, there is no promise made of a national unification of the Jews and Latter-day Saints taking place in North America or anywhere else. For all their assertions and genealogical research, the Latter-day Saints are not descendants of Joseph and can never join Judah in the fulfillment of a non-existent prophecy. The LDS Church takes many passages out of context and distorts passages in Ezekiel and many other places in the Bible to support their doctrine. But Peter warned that ignorant and unstable people who distort the scriptures do it to their own destruction. Second yeah, Peter 3.16 I would challenge all of you who is uh, listening or reading this to read the Bible and carefully examine the Bible against the, uh, what the LDS Church teaches. And uh, you'll clearly see that without taking the verses out of context, that they don't support the Mormon claim at all. My prayer and my prayer and my hope for the LDS people is that every one of them would be uh, would read the Bible and that they would come to a knowledge of the uh, true Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ of the Bible, and that they would come to Him and be saved. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Faith Podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe so you never miss an episode. A new episode goes live every Wednesday. If you have questions, comments, have suggestions for a future episode, or if you would like to be a guest, you can contact me through my website, genecurl.com. Remember, it's gene like the unit of biological heredity and curl like a curl on your head. Please leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever streaming service you use. God bless you and keep you till the next episode.